Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. From restaurant openings and discounts on bars and hotels to beauty and fashion offers, Sherlock's partners with London's best venues, suppliers and brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. And this month, we're offering new annual sign-ups, a free 111 Skin Space Antioxidant Booster worth £85. Or trial VIP and get two months free access using the code VIPX2 at checkout. For more information, visit sherlocksvip.com. In 2009, Jeannie and Stephen Cronk sold their house in South London, moving their three children to the tiny French hamlet of Cotignac to pursue a dream of launching their own wine label. With an ambition to bring excellent rosé to a wider audience, the couple created the rosé brand Mirabeau en Provence. Fast forward 10 years, and they now create three styles of rosé as well as a sparkling pink. Consistently voted some of the best in the world, Jeannie and Stephen's multi-award-winning brand produces over a million bottles of wine a year and is stocked worldwide. Jeannie, welcome to your Sherlock's success story. So much to ask you, <laughs> but just tell me about you. You had three children, but did you have a career before you had children? I had a, a little career, I would say, yeah. I, I worked in marketing for a tech company. I had uh, not a huge amount of experience of certainly what I'm doing now, but it was, you know, in the days of the tech bubble, so it was very exciting for somebody just coming out of uni, and I was allowed to do lots of things and experiment with uh, lots of different marketing techniques. It was a great time, actually, to be at work and to get busy, but then I relatively quickly met Stephen, you know, had two children rapidly, one after the other. And so I became a housewife for a little bit. Right. And you're German. I am. What brought you to the UK? I came to school. All bad German girls get sent to school in the UK, is what my husband always says. But it's not true, of course. It was just something my parents liked the idea of, that we would be educated somewhere away from home. And so I came to school in Kent and did my last two years of school there. And then I went to university in London. So you met Stephen, also in the telecoms world. I did. you were living in South London. When? And where did the idea of winemaking come from? Well, Stephen was actually in the wine trade before he usually says got a proper job. He always had a big sort of dream of getting back into wine. You know, wine is just one of those industries, probably a lot like fashion. You know, you just feel at home and you just love what you do. But at the time, it wasn't hugely lucrative. So he chucked it in when he couldn't really make it work for himself and started a job working in international sales for one of the up-and-coming telecoms companies. And he did really well there. But, you know, in his quieter moments, he always dreamt of going back into the world of wine. And what was your take on that? A good move well, or not? <laughs> well, I mean, in retrospect, of course, now I'm really happy that he did follow his dream and that I tagged along, basically. But at the time, I had two young babies and I used to go, yes, darling, all right, all right, one day, no worries, just keep going to work and keep the paychecks coming. And So what happened? He got home one day and you said, let's do this? 
No, but that voice in his head got louder and louder and louder. And he did go through quite a midlife crisis, you know, being quite unhappy. In his job. In in his job. And, you know, finding that he just really felt compelled to do something that he was passionate about and that would not just pay the bills, well, hopefully one day pay the bills as well, but something that would fulfill him more as a person. So in the end, you know, I couldn't really ignore the situation. And we had always, you know, we jointly dreamt of moving to France. You know, we we had a big love for the south of France. So it was just difficult to decide when was the right time because there never is really the right time to make such a big break. So what happened? You went on holiday and you said, right, we're going to do it now. Tell me what the process was from you actually packing up your life in London and moving to France. And did you already have a brand and a business idea? Yeah, so we did do quite a few recce's and that just confirmed what we thought that, you know, Provence was a place we wanted to go to. And then actually Stephen got a promotion, which I was super excited about, of course, as the wife at home. And he came home and said, I'm not going to take it. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the end of the world. And that basically meant if he wasn't going to take it, they were going to give him a redundancy offer. And the package was good. So we said, OK, this is the right moment because, you know, the bills are being paid for a bit longer. We've got the time to think about how we're going to do it, what we're going to do, where we're going to move. And that was all in 2008. And then, of course, you know, the big financial Mm. crash happened. So there was a bit of, you know, the road became a little bit more difficult. And getting out of London was harder than we thought, took us longer than we thought, because a house that would normally sell in two minutes took actually six months to sell. And then it was all sort of a mad rush to get the kids into school by September 2009, which is when we moved to this tiny little village in Provence and rocked up at the local school with two kids who couldn't speak any French. (laughs) And why Provence? Was it about living in Provence or was it about wine? Because surely you could have created an English wine brand. There are lots of great English wines now. To be fair, English wine then was not really something that was much talked about or much done. It hadn't even crossed our minds, to be honest. We also had this thing that we both felt that we wanted to go to France. I don't know. It was just in us somehow. And we loved Provence wines, always had done. We love Provence. Who doesn't love Provence? You know, we wanted to live in the south of France. So we looked at a wider area. We looked a bit at the Languedoc too. But in the end, I don't know. It's just one of those things. You just know when you're home kind of thing. Mm. It was just for both of us. It was the place to go to. So you arrived. You sent the children to French school. And where were you business-wise at this stage? We had had the idea that we wanted to create our own wine label. I mean, we weren't entirely sure whether we would buy our own vineyard and go from there or whether we should work with growers, which is what we ended up actually doing. We had the general idea for it, but we knew that we had to get there, you know, and live there and take the temperature and see sort of, you know, what's going on and how to make it work. So basically, we came there without anything, really, to be honest. And why a rosé? Did you think there was a gap in the market? for Rosie? We thought that Rosie was going to become a thing, to be fair. I mean, we were relatively early with that idea because it has, of course, in the meantime, become a massive thing. But in those days, I mean, people drank it, but it wasn't as popular as it is now. We thought it just felt like the kind of wine that would suit especially the younger generation really well because Mm. it's not very complicated, you know, as an idea. It's a bit like champagne in the sense that it's a celebratory wine. It's, of course, more accessible than champagne's. So, so people can drink mm. it more often. It's not it, too intimidating, is it? You know what you want without feeling like, I'm out of my depth here. 
Yeah, which we thought was actually quite nice and would suit people well. And, you know, we just had a hunch that that was what people would enjoy drinking. And Provence is, you know, the cradle of rosé. And they made amazing progress in terms of quality in the last 10 years. You know, they really worked hard at because rosé is actually quite a technical wine. You know, people think it's the easiest wine, but actually it's the hardest out of the three colors. And it's the most easy to spoil because the aromas are so volatile. So if you don't have, you know, the right technology and the right equipment. You said the aroma is the most volatile. Why is that? It's very prone to oxygen damage, for example. So, you know, it's very easy to spoil those aromas and lose the freshness of the wine. Largely speaking, cooling technology that you need. So that's what changed in Provence in the last 10 years. It's a bit boring. It's a bit technical. But they have actually, you know, got their way of making rosé. And they're world specialists in it. Over 90% of all wine that comes out of Provence is rosé. And that's completely unique in the world. And so what did you do? So you decided not to buy a vineyard. Why is that? Is that because most rosés that we know and love are blends? They are always a blend. In fact, by our local Appellation laws, it has to be a blend. And most of the rosé houses you know, the big names, they all work much in the same way that we do, which is they buy from growers and then they find the bins that they like and they blend them into a style, into a house style, much like you would expect a champagne, for example, that you like Verve or you like Moet. And it's a very similar model of work. Which allows you consistency of product year after year after year. Yeah, exactly. It gives you access to great wines. It gives you consistency. It also lets you scale a bit. So in our case, you know, because we grew in terms of volume, we could actually sell over a million bottles a year. You need a bit of scale. Yeah. So it's a smart way of working, to be honest. I mean, I always think it's the way most other industries think of perfumery or think of baking or, you know, people usually rely on professional growers to grow the raw materials and they usually do that really well. And then you get people like us who end up sort of blending to a certain formula or to a certain style. And I think that's where a lot of the skill to who decides on the recipe of the blend you know when you create a fragrance for example you have a nose who you work with to come up with something that smells amazing because you know brian can't just do that on their own who came up with the blend so we have exactly the same so we've got an amazing enologist called natalie who works a lot with us spends a lot of her days at our office and she's an amazing nose and an amazing palate and she is able to do what most people aren't able to do which is basically to taste the wine very early on in its development stage and project it forward because even if I'm in the meantime quite used to tasting I find it very hard to be able to say how a wine will develop and that's a real skill for that you need a specialist I mean if you today bought a vineyard and you blended the wines yourself I think you're quite likely not to succeed and we knew that that was for us a weak spot even Mm -hmm. though we oversee it all we work with her we're present at the end of the day you need somebody who's a real specialist in the field and we recruited those people right from the word go basically it's fascinating to hear about the process of creating wine tell us a bit about the three v's it sounds a bit like the four c's when it comes to buying a diamond what are the three v's Absolutely. So we've got viticulture, which is basically the growing of the grapes. Then we've got the vinification, which is how to transform the grape juice into wine. And then there's the vendre, which means to sell, because you have to actually sell and market the stuff. And it's Mm. where very often people do the first two Vs very well, and then they realize that actually selling it is much more difficult than they expected. So 
talking about selling it, I mean, you've come up with this brand that speaks to people that's kind of modern, but it's not too modern. It's very respected. What was that process? Where did the name come from? Was that your bag? Tell us a bit about the name Mirabeau en Provence and where that came from. Well, Mirabeau, if you come to Provence, is almost everywhere because the governor of Provence, uh, just pre-French Revolution, was a man who was the Comte de Mirabeau, so the Count of Mirabeau. So there's also a little village next to Aix-en-Provence, which bears that name. So we just really liked it. It's just one of those things. We saw it and we thought, that's the one for us. And then we were just completely gobsmacked that nobody had trademarked it. So we did. Happy days, all yours. Sat there for a bit waiting and then we got confirmation that it's ours. And we just thought it's a brilliant name and it's very French sounding, which is what you want. Yet it's not so complicated that you can't ask for it when you're in a restaurant, which is also quite important. So in 2009, you moved to Cotignac, you put the children to school, you knew you were going to create a Provence Rosé. In 2011, you launched your first Mirabeau. What was the process in between that? What happened? How did you get it to market? Well, the process in between was basically us working out who we were going to buy wine from. So, so we did a lot of driving and a lot of meeting people and finding out where were these sort of amazing growers that were growing these fantastic grapes that we wanted to be a part of Mirabeau. And uh, once we'd worked that out, we had to work out, you know, how to work with them, how we were going to bottle the wine. You know, there's a lot of logistics behind making wine. So we did a lot of sort of learning and finding out how we were going to package the product. So we came up with a label and uh, which bottle we were going to fill it in. We also made a call then, which was quite unusual in Provence. We put it in screw cap right from the word go, hugely frowned upon by lots say. of our colleagues. In the meantime, most people bottle in screw cap in Provence, actually, for the English market. But anyway, we did it right from the beginning and people thought it was very odd. Where did you get the hunch from to do a screw cap? It's just actually the best closure for rosé because it lets least oxygen in. So, you know, this is something that English people have no problem accepting. And it's actually technically the best closure. So we tried to design a nice screw cap and went with that. You mentioned English people. Were you aiming to market this wine at the English market? Absolutely. We're still almost exclusively export. We hardly sell any wine in France and we have a little shop in the village. But we knew right from the beginning that England would be our sort of home market, as it were. And it still is. Ten years down the line, even though we've expanded quite a bit all over the world. But England is kind of our you know, initial market. And we got a contract with Waitrose, which was really the beginning of the whole Mirabeau story because, you know, at the end of the day, when you make a product, you've got to get it sold. And Waitress said, okay, guys, you can have a go here. And we were really, really relieved and delighted by that. Before we talk about Waitress, can we talk about the shape of the bottle? Because we've seen lots of variations with shapes of the bottle. You went for something quite traditional. You went for a standard wine bottle. That's right. We went for a standard Baudelaire bottle. Lots of reasons. It's actually the bottle that's kind of quite commonly used for Provence. So I just actually like the shape. I still like it. Ten years down the line. We've been through several sort of thinking processes of should we change our bottle shape. It's an elegant bottle. It mm. works really well in people's wine racks. Mm. It fits in every fridge. This is true. Fits in the wine rack. Plus, you were doing a screw cap. You don't want to rock the boat too much, do you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to Waitrose. How did that happen? Banging on the door, a contact? How did you get to Waitrose? We did have a little contact through our nose at the time, Angela Muir who made just a little introduction to somebody. And that was nice. It got us in front of the buyer. So she was your first onologue. How did you find her? She was actually an old friend of Stephen's. So somebody Stephen enormously looked up to. She was a real personality in the wine trade. 
And he went to see her and she spotted a man in trouble and said, okay, come on, I'll do this with you. It was almost her swan song project because she retired soon after. You know, she put it in her head to get us off the ground and she helped enormously. So she gave you an introduction to someone at Waitrose. What was the process? I mean, they are notoriously hard to get into. What happened? Yeah, so Stephen managed to get an interview and he presented them some wine, which they did like. And he also said at the same time, you know, I'm going to really work unbelievably hard to move that wine off the shelf, which was something that appealed to the buyer, that we were going to actually go out there and, you know, do PR, do marketing, do social media, and try and help create demand for our product. And that was a huge incentive, I guess, for a buyer to say, okay, I'll give that a go because then the risk is diminished, right? That nobody's going to buy the wine. And we had a pretty poor shelf position in the first year. So we had a bottom shelf position, which is kind of, you know, I guess the way in and the way out. And then they (laughs) said, um, well, if you manage to sell from there, then you can come back next year. So we threw everything we had at it to make sure that we did. And who were your competitors at the time? I mean, X was around 10 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah. There was no Whispering Whispering Angel. was around. So who Magnet were you really shoot. fighting for for shelf space? Who are you trying to elbow off the, mm. the middle shelf? You know, it wasn't really a case of bumping someone off. You know, the market grew a lot. So it was just a case of we all actually found a space and we're good colleagues and we try and uh, help each other out when we can. So it's not really a case of one has to go in order for us to come in. And you told us that you said to Waitrose, you're going to work really hard to market this product. How did you do that? Well, we did quite a lot of PR right from the beginning. And we sort of focused on lifestyle PR as opposed to wine PR because we figured we need to actually get to the end consumer to create demand. And the wine press is read mostly by the wine press. So we did sort of start with journalists that were more mainstream press, I guess, which also obviously much closer to my own heart. And we did some social media in those days. Obviously, Instagram wasn't really happening, but Facebook was a bit. So we'd started sort of networking on Facebook and even did quite a lot of videos on YouTube. And The infamous video that I was going to come to for people listening. Tell us about this video. How many views has it had? I think it's 12 million by now over various platforms. So the infamous video (laughs) of how to open a bottle of wine without a corkscrew, really very highbrow. It was just one of those November mornings and Stephen was a bit bored and he said, oh, um, I'm going to go and make this video because it existed online already, but it was terribly long and cumbersome. So he he said, I'm going to reshoot that. And he did. And then we went back into the house and he posted it. And overnight, it just went completely mad. And it was just the most bizarre sensation because we had just stuff pouring in from all over the world, you know, requests for people to post it. Yeah, and it just went from there and it's still going. I mean, you know, if I had my time again, I would have probably worked a bit on the location and the makeup (laughs) and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, all publicity is good publicity. Absolutely, with 12 million views, it certainly is. And how did you fund the business? I mean, obviously you had Stephen's voluntary redundancy to pay the bills for a while, but it can't be cheap working with somebody like Angela Miru and, you know, commissioning all these bottles. How did you do that? We sold everything we had basically to set up the business. So we sold the house in London and all the other bits and bobs that we had accumulated. So we basically self-funded it and we've self-funded it till now. So we're just about to get our first outside investors in because we are expanding in America. But so far, it's just been the two of us. It's amazing. Talk to us about the price of the wine. So you launched with the classic and it went well. A Waitrose did it? It did. You know, it sold out in its first year relatively quickly. 
So we were asked to come back. And then we had three years at Waitrose growing year on year with a classic. And then we decided that I think the world is ready for a slightly more expensive, slightly more refined rosé, which we could get our hands on some really, really nice lots of rosé. So we then said, okay, are you ready for a wine that's, you know, a notch above in terms of style and styling? And they said, yes, we are. So then three years later, we managed to get the pure into Waitrose also. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So the classic was priced at... Well, in those days, the classic uh-huh. was £8.99. And a bit more these days. And a bit more these days, I'm afraid, yeah. It's eleven ninety nine, and that is largely due to our raw material cost increases. And this year, to be fair, Brexit has not, not done us any favours. Well, it's worth every penny. The Pure is priced at what these days? It's fourteen ninety nine. You also have the Etoile. Yeah, so Etoile was basically a wine that we made to respond to demand for more gastronomic rosés. So Etoile is a little bit pricier still and is not your average Provence rosé. It's almost completely Grenache. It has a beautiful, rich aroma that's perfect for the dinner table. So it's a little bit revolutionary in the way that we say it's actually a food wine and people traditionally don't really think of rosés with food. And you say it's mainly Grenache, the Etoile. What's Grenache? Grenache a grape variety. And that makes it more pink, less pink? It makes it less pink. It makes it more salmon colored, but it has some amazing sort of quite rich aromas of apricot and white peach. While it's completely dry, it makes it a more aromatic style. Okay. And how much is the Etoile? The Etoile is 15 pounds. And that's also sold in Waitrose? No, that's in Sainsbury's actually. That's in Sainsbury's. Okay. Is there a Magnum? Yes, there is. There's a Magnum in Waitrose of Pure. Ah, and there's more. Bigger there's than 300 that. 300 and there's 600. <laughs> Glad to hear it. And, you know, your sales, your global sales, the classic versus the pure versus the Etoile, what's the split like? Oh, the classic is still about 65% of our sales. I mean, people just love that wine. It's a happy, joyful, easy with food, great Friday night wine and always will be. So classic is really our great workhorse wine that does really well and will carry on doing really well. And talk to us about the price of wine. I know it's notoriously difficult to make money in the wine world. How have you done it? We took a long time to become profitable. I mean, it's partly our own choice because we chose to reinvest a lot into the business. But you become more profitable as you sell more bottles. So that is the real secret. And a lot of people are not able to sell any more bottles for various reasons. 
And of course, you know, owning estates is very expensive. So a lot of people who own only an estate and then are limited in terms of how many bottles they can produce, it's a difficult situation in terms of being profitable, mm. unless you are in, you know, the super regions, unless you're in a special place in Burgundy where you can charge, you know, equivalent sure. for sure. your bottle, you can charge 60, 70, 100 pounds for a bottle. Whereas, you know, if you come from Provence, there is a limit to what most people are prepared to pay for a bottle of rosé, even if it is really quite nice and well-made. So, you know, you do have to, to some degree, sell a few bottles in order to become profitable. And so what you're saying is that to be successful in wine, if you're going for volume, you want to be blending because then, you know, you can keep producing volume. That's right. I mean, we've always said that we will not grow any more than we can basically keep the quality really stunning. So we've kept a real on, are we able to grow further or not? So far, we've been able to. But for us, it's paramount what's in the bottle and to make sure that people will continue loving the wine. You said that the UK was your biggest market by far. You said that you're raising money to expand in the US. What comes next after the UK in terms of size market? The US does already come next. And then we have quite a big market in Holland and Australia. And then we're sort of all over the world, Canada, Caribbean, Germany, Austria. And your head office is in Provence. (laughs) How big is your team? How do you manage this global expansion, domination in the rosé category? Yeah, we try. We're 12 mostly in our little village in Cotignac, but we've got people in key cities. So I've got a couple of people in London and I've got somebody in New York and we've got somebody in Australia. And the rest is just Stephen getting on planes incessantly. And how do you split the roles between you? What's your role in the business? What's his role in the business? Mm, It's quite hard. It's not a very neat split, to be fair. We just try and make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. But I would say that I'm more of the marketing and design person. And I'm the sort of office mama. I look after staff and make sure that everything's okay at the home front. And I also manage all the relationships with the growers. So he's actually off flying around the world a lot, to be honest. So I'm a single mum for a lot of the time. And that's just how we split it. And that's fine. Do you think in moving, have you achieved what you set out to achieve? You know, you left London for a better life, you know, to pursue his dream to get out of the rat race. Have you got a good work-life balance? I mean, is there such a thing? Do you think you've been successful in that respect? Well, the work-life balance is quite tricky because we do work all the time, basically. That's just an entrepreneur thing. I think, you know, ask any entrepreneur, they're probably, when they're, if they're honest, they admit that, you know, work dominates their lives. But we do live in a beautiful village, you know. I'm surrounded by nature and beautiful things, beautiful buildings. I don't have to commute, which is great. You know, we do have a lot of the benefits of living in Provence, just that we're there to work, unlike other people who are there to drink rosé under (laughs) (laughs) platane trees. (laughs) We've got to talk about your Lix Frosé. We've touched a bit on the success you've had from your How to Open a Bottle of Wine Without a Corkscrew video. So if anyone watching, they're like a Calippo, but they are frozen rosé. And they were a kind of Instagram phenomenon, weren't they? (laughs) Did you create that for Instagram? And how much has digital and the kind of millennial customer being part of your focus because they really played into the moment so well didn't they absolutely we created the frosé just for taste of london to have something and to have a little talking point and for people visiting and and whose idea was that it was a joint idea i would say and we'd met the guys from lick a few years before already but then we were sort of ready to have a go and we needed a sort of novelty item for taste so we thought let's just do that we talked to waitrose they were a bit like "Mm, not sure this is the thing so we just 
thought, oh, we'll bring it to taste and see what happens. And, you know, stuff happened and people loved it. And then Waitress said, hmm, I think we'll have it after all. Can you go wide distribution in sort of four weeks' time? So the boys literally, I think they slept in their vans and near the factory and somehow made it happen. And so it found its way into quite a lot of stores and got its own little cute freezers. And it was a whole thing that literally came out of nowhere. But it was brilliant. And they're coming back this year. Is that kind of thing profitable? You do that on a, what, a revenue share or something with yeah. Nick? Is that something you're doing for marketing purposes or to make money? Both. It is profitable. It's a great way also to say, okay, you know, have a different product. It's wine related. You know, it's not a huge stretch in terms of credibility. And people just loved it. On the subject of shaking up the market, you launched Rosé in a Can. Now, this I hear is the sort of next big thing to come to the world of wine. Is this a logistical move? Is this an environmental move? And how is it going? It's really exciting. Yeah, I'm super excited by that, actually. So we have got a listing with Waitrose, which is just amazing. It was something that was close to my own heart because I have carried bottles around picnics. And I have seen, I've been to festivals where there's no glass policy. I've been to beaches with no glass policy where I fancied a sneaky glass of rosé. Quite right. You're not the only one. Yeah, so I thought it was a quite a neat project for lots of people. It's also something that the younger generation, I think, will fancy the look of. I know that the market is a vibrant market because beer's done it already. Yeah. You know, beer's sort of gone from cans being really naff into bottles, and then people went back to cans. In America, it's massive, and usually, you know, one thing leads to another. I can just see what people are doing. People yeah. are constantly outside, constantly at festivals. You know, it's just yeah. a logical thing to do, and it's 250 you know you can share it it's a neat amount of wine you don't have to have a huge bottle with you and does it taste the same rosé out of a can it tastes actually really nice you'd be surprised and I did a taste test with some really hardcore wine growers who I thought were just going to throw me out of the window for this and they absolutely loved it they couldn't get enough of it so it was quite funny and so you're sipping the rosé out of the can you're not pouring it into a glass we did pour it into a glass but I have drunk it out of a can you can drink it with a straw to be honest aluminium cans don't taste so metally so i think a lot of it's in the head to be honest and we've got to talk about sparkling rosé as well which he launched a couple of years ago was there a demand from your customers for that product i imagine so yeah so we took it to waitrose thinking that there was a probably a demand for a sort of prosecco method provence rosé and we've been right in thinking that and it's been a real little success story actually and i loved making it it was really fun you know and it is just that. It tastes like a delicious Provence rosé, but with a bit of fizz, and people just love it. Delicious. Far better than Prosecco, if you ask me. <laughs> and that's priced at how much? That's priced at uh, 14 99 Good value. From where I'm sitting, it sounds like it's been a bit of a dream, and it's all gone quite smoothly. Have there been significant challenges along the way, learnings that you can share with people listening? There have been plenty, and you know, any entrepreneur will probably tell you the same thing. You have to go through these moments in a way to grow, to get better. You know, it's one of those things that I always think if I could go back, could I have avoided it? What would I do differently? But these sort of challenges, they make you who you are. They make you more resistant in the longer term, more resilient and, you know, make you a better entrepreneur, I think, if they don't kill you. So there have been, you know, packaging mistakes. There have been plenty of things going wrong. Stephen once got chased out of the property by a grower he didn't want to work with. And things happen. Of course they do. And in the end, usually, if you work hard, things come good. 
And it's all character building, isn't it? And all these years down the line, would you buy a vineyard? Well, funny you should say that. We have just signed on the dotted line for a little estate. So we're kind of going back to what a lot of people start with. But, you know, with we're, a view we're... to create a very high end product with a limited run. Yes, that's right. And create more R&D as well, because it'll be our place to kind of experiment with our wines and have learnings for the rest of the range. It's also quite important for people to be able to come somewhere, you know, to have a place, to have a soul. Mm. So it'll be a really nice place uh, for us to invite people to bring journalists, bring influencers. You know, we'll cook, we'll do lots of lifestyle-y things uh, there as well. But it's also really neat for Stephen and me to be able now with the rest of the business going well enough that we've been able to buy this vineyard and actually, you know, it's the business that actually can sustain that vineyard rather than, you know, it being loss making. So yes, it's a great moment, but you need to keep your fingers crossed because in France, all sorts of things happen. And, you know, until September, we don't know if we're actually gonna make it to the finish line. Okay, I will. And always rosé, never red or white? Always rosé. We have a bit of red in the village showroom just to complete the range. You know, we are Rosé House. I mean, we've nailed our colour to the mast and that's what we do. And are there other brands that have inspired you in terms of the way they speak to customers, produce products, have been successful? I guess I've been quite inspired always by the lifestyle universe and by some of the women within that. So, you know, I've always loved Chrissy Rucker's work with a white company. You know, she was so targeted in the beginning as well and then has managed to branch out credibly into other parts of the lifestyle universe. Uh, Jo Malone, I've always been a huge fan of. Perhaps more younger people, uh, the girl behind Cezanne, for example. I mean, mm-hmm. we're going to go and see them tomorrow. And I think she's just done the most amazing job mm-hmm. at creating a sort of whole universe of things that appeal to people. And that's very much what I would like to do with Mirabeau. And how brilliantly Mirabeau sits with all those brands that you've mentioned. Before we finish, I've got to ask you about innovation. You seem to be really hot on that, whether it's ice lollies, whether it's rosé in a can, um, vegan wine, yes. no alcohol wine. Tell me briefly about those. This year, it's been a busy year on the new product development front. So I have actually launched a vegan wine and a wine where we've also taken a couple of percent of alcohol out. So it comes in at 11%. So it's a slightly lighter than the main range, which is quite nice, especially for us girls. So we can have an extra glass. It is fully traceable vegan, which is really nice because, you know, people often don't know, but in winemaking, sometimes milk-based products are used. So I managed... How are milk-based products used in wine? The proteins are used to filter wine. It's a chemical filter, okay. a relatively natural chemical filter, I must say, but it's very effective and it's commonly used. And is there much demand for lower alcohol wines? I mean, millennials now we're hearing are drinking less and less and less. What's the motivation for that? Is it for women? Is it for millennials? Why are lower alcohol wines? It was for both. I mean, we basically said that we did want the wine to be a really nice tasting and there is a limit to how nice a wine tastes if you take too much alcohol out. So we couldn't really make it work with more than 2% taken out, which we take out after the wine is finished. You know, that's a good way to do it, which means the wine is still aromatic. It's low in sugar because the normal way to have a low alcohol wine is to keep some sugar in it, which is how you find a Riesling or those kind of wines are at sort of often at 9%, which is even less alcohol. But yeah, we found that we couldn't really get it much below 11 and still taste more or less what you would be expecting of a Provence Rosé. But we thought, you know, we'll give it a go and it's a lighter wine. I find it makes a difference to me and it's been quite successful in the marketplace. And alcohol-free, not coming anytime soon? 
No, can't do that. I'm afraid. It just doesn't taste the same. You know, and then I think you're better off just having a proper alcohol-free cocktail. I don't really understand why you need to try and make a wine into an alcohol-free product. You know, if you're going to drink wine, drink wine. Don't drink, drink wine. too much of it and enjoy it. Drink 13%. That's what I say. <laughs> I love a glass of rosé with four cubes of ice. Is there a right amount of ice you should put in a glass of rosé? Yeah, you probably shouldn't put any, but you know what? What's so great about rosé is that you can drink it exactly how you like to drink it. End of story. So, so if you like it with your lots of ice cubes, then that's how you should drink it. And there's no right and wrong. There's no snobbery. What advice would you give people wanting to go into the world of wine? Ooh, hallelujah. That's tricky. You've got to do your research, pick your region, you know, and then being a specialist is not a terrible thing to be thinking about. Don't try and be all things to all men. Final question. What's your favorite thing to eat with a bottle of Mirabeau? Oh, I can tell you that because I've had it recently and it is a beautiful fillet or two of red mullet with a crispy skin is just perfect with it oh delicious Jeannie thank you so much I know we've got some Mirabeau en Provence we've got some cabs we've got some sparkling rosé um, oh waiting for us in the kitchen <laughs> so we're going to wrap it up there thank you so much for joining us I mean god to say I'm a fan is an understatement and what a fascinating world that you're in and god what a dream really to be living in Provence doing all this thank you so much I've loved chatting to you oh thank you so much for having me guys that's it for this week if you enjoyed that then do please rate review subscribe tell your friends and we will be back soon bye-bye hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 